Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. A manhole cover expresses a man. You lift the lid and what you find beneath that cover is something that's confusing at points, dark, unsettling. And you wonder, especially if you get inside, when you see all those caverns, where does all this lead inside a man? What's really going on here? If you walk through the dark subterranean passageway of many men's lives, you can hear some very fragile sounds from time to time when they're really open and the lid is pried. For instance, let me read you a quote by a television and film star, Burt Reynolds. He lets us kind of peer inside his manhole for a minute. He said, my dad was the chief of police, and when he came into the room, all the light in the air went out of it. There's a saying in the South, no man is a man until his father tells him he is. It means that someday when you're 30 or 40 grown up, this man whom you respect and love and want to love you, he puts around his arms around you and says, you know, you're a man now. You don't have to do all those crazy things and get into fist fights and all that to defend the honor of men. You don't have to prove anything. You're a man, and I love you. But we never hugged or kissed. We never said, I love you to one another. No, we never even cried. Reynolds paused for a moment and then said, so what happened was is that later I was desperately looking for someone who'd say, you're grown up, and I approve and love you, and you don't have to do these things anymore. I was lost inside. I couldn't connect. I was incomplete. I didn't know then what I needed to know. You know, there are a lot of men today who are like that, uh, feeling a sense of, of incompleteness, maybe tough on the outside like a manhole cover, the appearance of steel, but on the inside, disconnected, like Reynolds, incomplete, with a most basic question still left unanswered. A, a question, really, that our society, as sophisticated as it is, should have been able to answer, and the question is this, when does a boy become a man? Isn't it amazing that there's no crystal clear answer to that question? Is it when he gets hair on his face? Is it when he gets his driver's license? Is it when he kills his first deer? Uh, is it in a more sinister way when he has his first sexual conquest? Is it when he graduates from high school? Is it when he goes off and gets a, his job or finally gets married? Is, is, is that the seal of manhood? No. Somehow none of those feel totally settling, do they? And it's in the absence of a clear answer in today's culture of what it means to be a man that has made life for many men beneath the manhole cover in those subterranean caverns mysterious, confusing, and scary. I want you to listen to Memphis columnist Bob Haltom, who summed up this issue this way in his newspaper article entitled, Demise of real men has guys wandering in the woods. This is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it makes the point. He says, frankly, I'm concerned about the future of my gender. Let's face it. 
These are tough times for guys. The problem is that these days we men aren't quite sure what it means to be a man. When I was a child, America had three basic role models. John Wayne, Clark Gable, and the Marlboro Man. These were str strong, tough, self-assured men who rode horses, smoked cigarettes, ate red meat, and never worried about their cholesterol. Did you ever see John Wayne sitting on a horseback eating an oat bran muffin? <laughs> of course not. But Duke Wayne and Rhett Butler and the Marlboro Man, they're all gone now. In their place are new sensitive males, such as Alan Alda and Phil Donahue. In fact, one could make the argument that the only real men left in America today are General Norman Schwarzkopf and Nancy Reagan. <laughs> real men, right? Remember the aqua velva man, he says? He proudly stated the simple truth that a man wants to smell like a man. Well, he's gone now. And in his place is a fellow named Calvin Klein. He's obsessed about something, but I'm not sure what yet. <laughs> the problem is, is that we males no longer have a clear vision of what a real man is. We've been told that real men don't eat quiche, but what do real men do? I don't know. And in a sense, at the end of the article, the I don't know, you feel yourself falling off the end of a canyon. I don't know. A man wants to feel like a man, but a man wants to know what a man is. And that's part of the struggle today as we venture into the 90s. You know, ironically, in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, much of the definitions of manhood came from women, not men. In some ways, that has been helpful. It's shaped men in some ways. But in other ways, the lack of other clear balancing voices has left a void. And lacking these clear masculine images, men have become feminized to an unhealthy place, soft, sensitive. And I want you to know today, for many, unhappy. Something is missing, and I, I don't think that anyone says it better, though cryptically he says it, than that poetical guru, Robert Bly. He's written the best-selling book, Iron John, and it was his interview with Bob Moyers on PBS in 1990 uh, called A Gathering of Men that started what is now known as the men's phenomenon. Listen to what Bly says of soft males. That's his term for today's young man. He says, they're lovely, valuable people. I like them. But something's wrong. There's not much energy in them. They are life-preserving, but not life-giving. You know what he means by that? They, they try to hold things together, but the energy to move things and make things happen, it's not there. And why is it, he says, that you often see these men with strong women who positively radiate energy? Here we have a finely tuned young man of the 90s, yet he himself has no energy to offer. Well, this evening we're only going to peer under the manhole cover for a moment. Uh, this subject is pretty vast and deep, and 
somewhat sobering in some ways, though my intent here this evening is not to make you feel heavy, but it is to break maybe some wrong thinking you've had and to make you begin to scratch at what I think is a very important subject, uh, not only for men, but for women as well. So I want to begin by looking at what I call on your outline the three major passages of manhood. I think there are three critical places in a, a boy's life as he's venturing into this sea called manhood. The first can also be the most problematic, this first passage. And this first passage is this. It is from mother to father. From mother to father. In his book, Healing the Masculine Soul, Gordon Dalby writes, Given the biological and emotional intensity of the mother-son bond, only someone whose intrinsic identification with the boy exceeds that of the mother can draw him away into individuality and manhood. Clearly only the father meets such a requirement. What Dalby's saying here is that the bond between a mother and son is so strong that only a dad can separate it or shape it in a positive way. If not, an over-identification with a mom will wound his masculine soul. A break with mom to a man, ideally a dad, is the essential first passage to manhood. Perhaps you watch television Friday night and saw 2020. Uh, there was an episode there that uh, goes so well with the message today. It was a piece entitled, Single and Still Living with Mom. In it, there was a study done and it was reported that one-third of all single men, 24 to 35, are still living at home with mom. Having mom cook the food and clean the house and provide a nest while this son works in the marketplace but still relies on a certain bond with mother that should have been broken long ago. Author Ken Riley calls it the Peter Pan syndrome for men who have never grown up. You know, in some of the primitive societies of the past, they have an insight that, quite frankly, has eluded us as Americans. In primitive societies, there is a time, though planned well in advance, and the mother knows it's coming, where the men of the tribe come to the home, and with the mother crying, pull the young boy from the mother's arms into the tribal community of men. And in that process, a necessary emotional and psychological break occurs to cause the young boy to begin to look strongly to this male community. It's a powerful step. It's a necessary step. I want you to see in a moment it's a biblical step. But for right now, let's just ask the question, how does an American boy find his way through this first masculine passageway. How does he find it today? Especially if mom doesn't understand how important this is, or if mom won't let go, or maybe, worse even, if dad is not there in some way calling his son out into manhood with well-defined terms of what it means to be a man. I think this is always a struggle. It's part of the family struggle. 
Uh, it was part of Mary's struggle with Jesus Christ. I mean, can't you imagine going to all places and finding that this very struggle rests with Mother Mary? But it does. Not just in one place in Scripture, in many places of Scripture. Now, I want to sample three of those just for a moment. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 2. This, this is when Jesus was entering puberty. Uh, he was 12 years old, and uh, he was at the temple for a time at a ceremony, and as they left, Jesus sneaked back into the temple and began to interact with the scribes and Pharisees, and suddenly his mom and dad realized that he wasn't there, and so they came back. But I want you to notice the interaction that occurs here. Uh, some of these passages, uh, by the way, we're going to look at them tonight, might clear up why Jesus talked to his mother and dad, or his mother in particular, the way he did. Look at verse 48 of chapter 2. Now they found Jesus back in the temple, and when they saw him, it says in verse 48, they were astonished. And notice it's Jesus' mother who speaks and says to him, Son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now doesn't that sound a little... Well, a little harsh. Doesn't that sting a little bit? But what you see, this young man beginning to move in the first stages of into manhood as he's beginning to turn his eyes away from mom to his real father and to identify with him. When Jesus was 30, there was another incident found in John chapter 2 in which you see Mary still struggling with letting go of her influence and control of her son. It's a wedding. It's a celebration. They've run out of wine. And in chapter 2, verse 3, Jesus' mother begins to try to exercise some influence over him, appointedly so. Notice in verse 3 it says, And the wine gave out. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to him, Honey, they have no wine. Now, can you hear another message in that? There's a strong message of, you need to do something. And notice Jesus' response in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman. Now, does that sound inappropriate? See, this is a man speaking now, separate from mom. doesn't mean that he's in any way speaking derogatorily of her, but now there is a separateness rather than a bond. He is his own man, and he says, Woman. What do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Don't try to control me. In the midst of Jesus' frenzied ministry over in Matthew chapter 11, you might turn there, chapter 12, excuse me, there's another incident. The same kind of thing is being expressed. And in this thick of the ministry, uh, for whatever reason, Mary brings her other boys and and tries to get Jesus to come outside and speak. Look at verse 46. It says, He's speaking to the multitudes, and behold, His mother and His brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with Him. And someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But He answered the one who was telling Him this and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out His hand towards His disciples, He said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, 
my mother. Do you feel the separateness that's here? I'm my own man. I know where I'm going. I'm identified with my father. This passage from mother to father is a very critical one for a young boy growing up. It must occur in the passage to manhood. But there's a second. That second is from father to male mentors. Now this is going to be a personal decision a young man has to make at some part to personally himself separate from his dad and look to others who will craft and shape in a more sophisticated way the direction of his life. Before we explore that in just a moment, I want you to note though that if this first passage from mother to father has not been successfully completed, if the mother's life continues to prevail over her son, then the tendency of the boy now trained to look to women will be for him in manhood to look for another woman to be the completion of his manhood. In fact, if letter A isn't completed rightly, letter B would look like this, from mother to wife, rather than from father to male mentors. And if such an occasion takes place, this young male is emotionally and psychologically stunted in his masculinity. And he goes out not into life looking for mentors who will help craft in a much more sophisticated way his masculinity, but he will go forth looking for a woman who can be the source of his masculinity. It's what I call when we looked in 1 Kings 21. Remember when we talked about Ahab and Jezebel? We talked about Ahab looking for a mother-slash-wife. One who would nurture and take care of and protect and, and, and nurture him rather than he turning and protecting and providing for and nurturing her. The former is not a real man. And Ahab was not. Only in a healthy separateness from women can a man ever be the kind of man women really need. That is so important to hear. A man needs a woman to affirm his masculinity constantly. He needs that. It's fragile. But she can never be the source of his masculinity. The journey to manhood is through men, first in a dad, then secondly through other male mentors at different times in his life. And a father can only take a son so far. Ultimately, the father has to pass the baton. He's got to let go. If he doesn't, a son can get over-identified with his dad, try to be kind of his dad's boy. And, 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 and that's not healthy either. There's a place where there's got to be a letting go. And as that boy is let go, as he moves off, he begins to look for other men. And the Bible is full of those other men, those male mentors. The Scripture is full of that. Proverbs 27, 17, you've heard it, as iron sharpens iron, remember? So one man sharpens another. And that's part of the male mentoring process. In Titus 2, uh, Titus is asked by Paul to mentor the young men in that spiritual community. He tells Titus, help these young men to be sensible about their life. He says, Titus, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity, with dignified, sound speech, which is beyond reproach. Mentor these men, these young men. Shape them. Make them real men. And on and on it goes through all the Scripture. Dad can be the start of manhood, but other men must significantly shape it. 
You know, I'm convinced that uh, much of the masculine health that I think that I possess, to whatever degree, has really come from other men. Uh, men that God in His providence has brought into my life at different times, real men, godly men, men without compromise, who for whatever reason, in those periods of time, uh, I opened up my life. I didn't have to, but I did, and allowed them to shape me. I allowed their image to be part of my personality. And it's still there. Some of what I do, even mannerisms, are because of what I watched in those men because I said, that's what I want to be. And I carry them within me to this day. That's how important male mentors are. But now we're at the summit of manhood. We're not finished. There's a third passage. And that is from male mentors to the Lord Himself. You see, the final path of manhood is not from the exterior models, but it's from the internal dynamic of a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. At some point in life, whether it's at 22 or 33 or 45 or 57 or 68, doesn't matter when it is, but at some point in life, manhood should begin to rest more and more on the dynamic on the internal dynamic of a man and the living God who lives within him. So that he's taking his cues from that and shaping his decisions from that power source in his accepting the call and the responsibilities and the leadership that are uniquely masculine from Jesus Christ himself who would want to give those things to him and call him and in whose affirmation this man must value more than any other. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you remember, Ephesians in this third chapter is beginning to turn to a very practical side and Paul is a male mentor both to uh, the men in this spiritual church, in this community, as well as the women, but now he's trying to move them to this summit place and you can feel that when you get here at the end of chapter 3. You might notice he says in chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray this way, on my knees, that He, that is Christ, or God, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, where? In the inner man. Inside that there might be a whole new connection. Not that disconnectedness Reynolds spoke about or incompleteness, but suddenly you might feel connected and complete with the Spirit of God and walk with Him. And notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he says to them that you might walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And for men, that's to be a man. That's a call to manhood as the Bible defines it. And as hopefully, male mentors has helped flesh out and dad helped emulate when you were young. If we could sum all this up, it would be that the ultimate male bonding is when a man alone meets the Spirit of God and that Spirit is his primary shaper of his values and his actions. And out of that dynamic come things that are healthy and constructive and pure and right true. If you could sum it up, you might sum it up this way. The movement from mother to father 
is a major emotional passage. The movement from father to male mentors is a major personal passage where the boy becomes his own individual, separate from mom and dad. And the movement from male mentors to the Lord is a major spiritual passage of submission to the living God. All these three are important. They occur at different times for different men. They may even overlap in their occurrence, but they're extremely important. Now, I want you to know that understanding the passages is, of, of manhood is just the start. Knowing what it means to be a man is, is another. And again, we could talk all evening about what does it mean specifically to be a man. But for the time that we have this evening, since we're just cracking the, the manhole cover, remember, what I'd like to do is show you a picture of a real man in the Bible. Because a picture many times is worth a thousand words. So turn with me back to Matthew chapter 11. And there is a great photograph of a real man. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. And when you get there, you'll notice immediately that it's discussing, or Jesus is discussing here, John the Baptist. And what a great photograph he provides of manhood. Notice it says in verse 7 that as they were going away, these people who were speaking to Jesus, Jesus began to speak to the multitude still there about John. And here's what Jesus said to these multitudes who were gathered around him. He asked them some questions. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Now let's stop there. What is the picture that comes to your mind about a reed shaking in the wind? <laughs> Do you get a feeling of something that's weak? That is kind of a wimp? Uh, that has no real convictions, that can't stand up to the storm, but simply bends at whatever uh, blows of popular opinion or social pressure. You get somebody who's wishy-washy without personal self-mastery. Did you go out, he says, to look at a wimp? Is that what drew you out? Then look at verse 8. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. In other words, did you go out to see somebody who uh, was comfort-driven? They wanted to be in kind of high places and, and project all kinds of images of power and comfort and ease? Is that what you went out to see? Now let me tell you, in both cases of those questions, the Greek language answers it. And you know what the answer is already, don't you? That's not why they went out. Who would have wanted to go out and see a wimp or somebody who's just self-absorbed? So why did you go out, he says, in the next verse, verse 9? And then he answers it. Incompletely, he answers it. Why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, he says. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, but he doesn't answer what the more is. The passage just begs for you to finish it. What's the more? A prophet? Yes. But more than a prophet, you went out to see a real live man. That's what you wanted to see. And how desperately, if you know anything about these times, Israel needed such a male mentor. Israel was a land covered over in hypocrisy. 
prosperity, softness, no conviction, religious hypocrisy, no one with any conviction standing for anything, or courage. But when John came on the scene, people flooded out to see something they had forgotten, a real man. You know, we are just as desperate in our country for real men today. Real men. Not males. Real men. John the Baptist, I think, had two outstanding characteristics. Let me just list them for you. The first was, and I think if you read anything about this photograph in other places, John the Baptist comes across like a wild man, doesn't he? Uh, he's, he's, got, he's got all these disciplines that kind of go way above the social climate of the day. You know, dressed in camel's hair, diet of locusts and honey, not drinking any wine or liquor, keeping himself separate and pure. He was a wild man. But what that illustrated was a desire for self-mastery. The scripture also says he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. He was a man committed to truth and integrity. His whole ministry was that of unveiling the hypocrisy of his day and saying, you're lying to yourselves. You're not living what you say. He preached a message of repentance to his culture. He was also a man who was courageous, regardless of the consequences. You've got to remember now, it was John the Baptist who ran alongside the king's carriage and yelled into Herod, you're an adulterer, and stayed with that truth and that reality from his own integrity until Herod killed him. He was a wild man. He was wildly submissive to the call of God on his life, regardless of what it cost him. But you know what is important to hear about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, as wild and crazy as he was, would not have threatened you in the least. You know how we know that? Because John the Baptist, according to the Scripture, was irresistibly approachable. It says in Matthew 3, 5, that all of Jerusalem, all of southern Judea, all that region just flooded out to him. They were excited about what they saw because in him they saw somebody who was a leader, who was trustworthy, who was vulnerable, who was accepting. You know one of the things people did when they came to John the Baptist? You, you have a hard time doing that with your best friend. But these people, the Scripture said, flooded out to John the Baptist and openly confessed their sins to him. You don't confess your sins to somebody unless you feel comfortable with them. But they did that with John. Two of these incredible characteristics of true manhood. There is a certain wildness. That's what, by the way, Robert Bly was saying when he said a true man is life-giving, not life-preserving. Wild when it comes to a passion for self-mastery and truth and justice and courage and yet irresistibly approachable when it comes to transparency and vulnerability and acceptance and being able to give people direction which they desperately wanted. You know what? That's a man. Wild but irresistibly approachable. We could go on, but I'll leave it to you to do a more detailed study. But if you want to see a real man in action, John the Baptist is a great place to begin. To this biblical portrait, I'd like to add one specific biblical admonition. It's found over in 1 Corinthians 13. You might turn there 
uh, most of you uh, read 1 Corinthians 13 or hear it when you're at a wedding and they sing it and it's the big love chapter. But there's a strong admonition in 1 Corinthians 13 about manhood. And it's found in verse 11 as Paul talks about love and part of being a man is to be loving. But in this part, Paul speaks directly, I think, to men. And in verse 11 he says this, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child and think as a child and reason as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. You might circle the words did away. It's the Greek word katorkeo. Uh, and it's found in numerous places in the New Testament and in other references outside the New Testament. In almost every other case, it's translated not lightly did away, but it's translated in those passages destroy or abolish or bring to an end. It's a strong word. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That's what he's saying here. What holds a lot of men back from moving on into manhood, real manhood, is they have a hard time putting down childish things. It's painful to end a certain aspect of childhood. I remember when I was going into junior high that uh, there were certain things I still played with, toys. And I, as I went into junior high, I remember the tension I began to feel around my junior high buddies because they looked and laughed at those things like, you still play with those things? And so suddenly I felt one foot in one island and one foot in the other and the islands were moving apart because there was football and girls and parties and those kind of things going this way and there was mom and home and playing with army men and clay going that way, you know? And, and I just want to be honest, I felt a real pain. It was like I was being pulled apart and this part was safe, predictable. This part was wild and kind of scary. Didn't know if I'd make it. There is a place for many men that they think they can keep a foot in both islands, but you can't. What you do is you jump back into childhood, childish things, and you put around you this big steel cover that says man, but inside it's still a boy. Only you can put away men childish things. I'm not talking about, as some people charge me with this morning, kind of laughing, like, well, you're saying I've got to give up my boat and that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm talking about really deeper things. Really. Things that help shape the course and direction of your life because, men, we're out on the point. And when it comes to a place, every man must decide in his calling to be a man, that he's going to accept the heavy responsibilities that come with it. The pain that it extracts. The sacrifice and the courage that it requires. The aloneness that you feel at points when you're out on that cold point leading. Nobody else is there to take care of you or hold your hand. But with those things also, the dignity that comes with it and the honor of being sealed a man, and the power and the fullness, those things come with it too. And a man has to decide whether those things are better than toys. 
irresponsibility. Adolescent escapes. Capitulation to infantile feelings because I'm afraid to go on into the world of real manhood. Childish things like that. Let me give you three summary statements that might be helpful. It's these. Manhood is a title. A title that is earned. It's not something you experience like killing your first deer or being in bed with someone or being out in the woods beating some drums with a group of guys. That's not manhood. It's not an experience. It's a title that you earn and other men have to confer it and the Father Himself on you. It's a specific state of being that you achieve, that you are called out to by other men, dad, mentors, Jesus Himself, and then validated when you get there. Secondly, the quest for manhood involves moving towards men and away from women as the source of manhood. That's not a personal put-down of women in any way. Uh, I think you know where I stand there. But it's a fact of where manhood is. The quest, number three, for manhood involves putting away those childish things that I just mentioned. You know, as I said this evening, we are only cracking the lid. We're not going as deep as I would like to go into this subject and to flesh it out and put meat on the bones. But if I at least stimulated your senses, especially you guys here this evening, to know more, I want to suggest to you what I think are three good action steps to start if you want to crawl deeper into some of those subterranean caverns of your life and get some health there. The first would be this. It's always good to start with information because information is the source of all creativity. And I want to recommend a book that I read last summer that was really helpful to me. It's by Gordon Dalby, D-A-L-B-E-Y, Gordon Dalby. It's entitled Healing the Masculine Soul. It's published by Word. This is an excellent, excellent book. And it's very helpful to begin to help you think a little deeper about who you are as a man, or in some of these paradigms that might be new to you that I am cracking open here this evening. That would be a good starting place. For some of you who are dads here this evening, uh, maybe a great project to begin to start thinking about and working on, though you won't complete it for a while, it'll take a while to, for you to feel comfortable with it, is in taking on your son as a manhood project. Remember, for a boy to be a man, he is not just being released by mom, but called out by dad to something. So get a group of guys together. Get Dalby's book and talk through that book and maybe think of some ways that you can define manhood while that boy is there and then call him up to that place and when he gets there, put the seal on him and knight him as a man be wonderful. Come up with some kind of ceremonies. You know, two years ago, uh, a couple of guys and I got together. We have a number of sons among the three of us. They're moving now towards some of the later years and into college and those kind of things. And we covenanted together that we, we were going to create some ceremonies to help our boys understand what it meant to be a man. One when they finished high school and one hopefully when they finished college. And we've gone through that with some of those boys already. And when one last year graduated from high school, the three dads got together and took him out for an evening. 
but it wasn't as dads. No longer dads. We didn't speak to him as dads. We spoke to him as a community of men. And we talked straight to him about what it was going to be like when he went to college and the temptations he was going to have and the foolish things that we did that we regretted and the right things that we did that we're proud of. And we talked earthy, man to man, to this man-child. And we laid our hands on him and prayed for him and blessed him and commissioned him into this process. And it was exciting. And it's so fun to be around that guy when he comes home from college because he runs up to me and he, now I'm kind of like a part of the tribal community, tells me how he's been doing and what he's succeeding in and where he's failing. He's brought me into his life because I opened up my life to him. The same thing we're going to do when he graduates from college. We're going to set some standards of what a man is in society, how he treats women, how he earns his way, his honesty, his integrity, what it means to provide for a wife and family, not use them to provide for him. And we're going to call him up to that and ask him, if you want to join us, you've got to do this to get the seal. That would be another good approach. A third one that every guy in here could do that I would recommend is uh, something that's going to occur next fall, starting September the 15th. That's when we restart the men's fraternity. And some of you have been involved in the men's fraternity, but uh, the next section of the men's fraternity will last six months, and the subject will be manhood. And we will flesh out all that I have just simply cracked open tonight. And that will start September the 15th, every Tuesday morning for six months, starting at 6 a.m., 6 to 7.30. And uh, it's going to be a community of guys being real and open and hopefully teachable and holding each other accountable. And for some of us, it'll be healing. For some of us, it'll be defining. But I think for every one of us, it'll be healthy. And I would invite you to join us if you'd like to be a part of that six-month process. There'll be more that'll be given to you in August of how to join up and a partner that you can bring to be accountable to. Those are some, I think, really good action steps. Uh, they're not hard, but remember, now if you're feeling a little heavy, it's only because this issue is a little scary. It's subterranean. But I want you to know, it's not scary. It's healthy. It's being a man. And you're never going to feel like a man until you leap into the areas that are challenging to you, because that's not part of manhood too. Don't, men, sink back into the known and the comfortable and dig yourself a rut for the next 30 years. Keep pushing yourself forward. That's what manhood's all about. I'd like to close with this story about a real man. It's a story of a man in World War II. He was in that loathsome place called Auschwitz. And there were a group of Nazi guards who discovered that a prisoner was missing from one of the cell blocks. And in retaliation for the escape, the guards selected ten men to die an excruciating death in one of the starvation bunkers that are there. Now last year, Bill Wellens and I went at sunset into Auschwitz and stood in one of those starvation bunkers ourselves. Little room, concrete, every guy stood there naked, pressed up against one another so that no one could sit down or do anything. They just stood there day in and day out. One of the condemned, a Polish sergeant, sobbed, my poor wife, my poor children, as the guards stripped him and his companions of their shoes and clothing. Suddenly both the guards and the prisoners were startled as an old man stepped forward and addressed the commandant. He said, I would like to die in place of one of these men, the old man said, 
In whose place do you wish to die? The commandant asked warily. Him, the prisoner replied, pointing to the Polish sergeant, the one who has a wife and children. And who are you, number 16670, asked the commandant, checking the number on the elderly prisoner's clothing. Just a Catholic priest, the man said. The Nazis called priest, pig priest, and considered them the second lowest form of life in the camp next to the Jews. The old man had chosen his words carefully to give himself the greatest chance of being allowed to die. The commandant replied, accepted. The priest, Father Maximilian Kolb, took his place with the other nine, and the Polish sergeant was returned to the cell block. Who was this man who wanted to die for another? Father Kolb was a Polish Franciscan priest who before his arrest in 1941 vocally opposed Nazism, both from his pulpit and over national radio. Sentenced to Auschwitz for aiding Jews in the Polish underground, he lived the life of a mentor among his fellow prisoners. He prayed with and encouraged them, talking daily with them about Jesus. He cheerfully shared his meager rations with his fellow prisoners and finally gave his life for them. He willingly walked naked into a starvation bunker with nine other condemned men. A Polish worker named Bruno Brokowitzi was sent into the bunker every day to haul the dead to the crematorium. Brogovici had been in the starvation bunker many times performing the same grisly task among other doomed men, but this time was different. He later compared the experience to descending into the crypt of a church. Instead of the usual moans and curses, he heard prayers and hymns. He heard not just Father Kolb's voice, but the voices of all the men joined in praise to God. Borgovici described how Kolb mentored his doomed companions even in the last days of their lives. He asked for nothing and never complained, he said. He inspired others with courage. Whenever a man seemed on the verge of unconsciousness or death, Borgovici recalled, Kolb would pray with that man and bid him farewell. The hymns and prayers of the survivors lost strength as the men began their second week in the bunker. One by one, the prisoners died. At the end, one guard looked into the serene face of Father Kolb and then emerged from the bunker muttering, This priest is a real man. We've not had his kind in here before. John the Baptist, Maximilian Kolb, real men. Real men calling us to a life of real manhood, men. A manhood that is desperately needed in the days in which we live. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that we can call You Dad, that we can look to You and know that You're a God who is irresistibly approachable and life-giving. And we thank You that there's a Father's Day, not just for our fathers, but that we have a permanent Heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, who desires to nurture us, but who wants us as men to grow up and model true manhood. Lord, I pray for myself, for the husbands, for the fathers, for the sons, for the men here tonight, 
Lord, help us in even a little way by what we teach, by how we live, to move us as men into a community that desperately needs us. But when they see us, they'll know that we're irresistibly attractive because it's something our world needs in a real man. Father, I thank You for the witness of John the Baptist. I thank You for the life of Jesus Christ, for His calling. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.